Hi everyone and welcome to Tea in the Law Raspberry Jam, a podcast by me, Victor Sessa, and Esther Derby, with conversations and interviews about agile, coaching systems, management, culture, continuous improvement, and much, much more. The Law of Raspberry Jam is one of the laws spelled out by Jerry Weinberg, and it states, the more you spread it, the thinner it gets. It refers to dilution of messages, and that's quite important because when we dilute a message, we can significantly weaken it, or possibly even change the entire meaning of it. With Agile having become commoditized over the years, we think many messages have been diluted, and we'd like to share our view on some of them. In our third episode, we talk about Agile retrospectives and what you can do to improve them. And that's quite exciting, given that Esther Derby and Diane Larson wrote the first book on Agile retrospectives. We talk about their five-step framework, and we give you five tips on what you can do to improve your retrospectives. So without further ado, here's our third episode. We hope you like it. We're talking about retros today. Yes, we are. It's a subject that I find super interesting. It's an important aspect of our job uh, as coaches. Um, And there's a lot of content on it, but there's not a lot of training on it. That is correct. I'm just curious. Do you remember your first retrospective? Or, Or an early one? I remember several early ones, which was back in the days when people were doing retrospectives at the end of a project. So I did some retrospectives that were for projects that had gone on for a year or more. I think the longest one I ever did was uh, the project had gone on for four years. No. And, and, And was it at the end or did like a new cycle of four years start? Well, um, considering that the project had been, oh, I think we could say an abject failure. Uh, <laughs> they went on to do something else. But that was way too late. That was way too late. We were we were trying to harvest some lessons for management in that case. It was not stuff that would be immediately applicable to the teams. Okay. What was immediately applicable to the teams in that case was trying to repair some relationships. Ah. Uh. Yeah, that matches, uh, well, not the relationship part, but having them at the end of a long project, that matches my experiences as well, my first ones. They weren't called retrospectives, though. They were called lessons learned. Mm. And I remember my first retrospective because it was, I don't remember who held it. I remember the format. It was Mad, Sad, Glad. So it's a pretty like standard one, which doesn't talk about data, but at least it gets a conversation started in during a project, not at the end of it. And I came out of that meeting so impressed that, wow, here's a team. They're actually having conversations about, you know, how they're feeling and what's happening while it's happening. I think that's uh, great because then you can actually adjust what you're doing rather than following an inevitable path, right? Well, so um, as we got started, we talked about some material. There's a lot of material available. And I I, I know for myself, I've gone into your Slido's or your SlideShare presentations about what retrospectives are on several occasions. And I've read your book. You literally wrote the first book on retrospectives. On agile retrospectives. There's actually an earlier book by Norm Kurth for project retrospectives. Okay, on agile retrospectives. What, What sparked you to write that book? I had been around the retrospective community, and people were struggling with how do you adapt something that has been written about at the scale of looking at a year or two years' worth of work to something that's happening on a regular cadence, 
you know, a week, two weeks, a month at the most. And there seemed to be a need to provide a framework that let people reflect on their projects without it feeling like it had to go on for days, right? So, so it was looking for a way that we can help people think and learn and decide together in a shorter period of time. And so we found structure to be super important for that. You know, so we, we articulated a structure for that. And then activities that help a team think together in a way that maximizes participation, make sure people have a chance to get their voice in, and um, get some out of habitual thinking. So that was really, the, that was the impetus behind it, to really take this idea and scale it down to something that, that could work in a week or two weeks or a month. I think the book is still spot on. I, I work with a lot of coaches and scrum masters, and when they ask me, oh, I, wanna, I want to improve the way I do retrospectives, I ask them, you know, have you read this book by Esther? Uh, and many of them say no, and then they're like, but it's so old. Is it still valuable and accurate? <laughs> well, I say, you know, try reading it, and we'll see, and we'll figure out. And they always come back with the same, like, oh, there's a lot of good gems that I could take and apply directly. Uh, it's not as old as me. Yeah, it's been around for a while. And there are some things that I would change in that book. You know, there's something, there's, I've learned some things since then. I've practiced more and I've talked to more people who have done these short, short retrospectives on a regular cadence. So there are, there are things I would change. There's stuff I've learned, but I think the five stage format is still a really solid way to think about a retrospective because it is how people think when they are thinking clearly. And it's really super important when you are trying to get people to think together to give them a framework so that they actually are, you know, kind of in the same place. So everybody's looking at data at the same time rather than someone's looking at data and someone's coming up with solutions. Helps people organize their thinking. And you've now taken the book to the next step, which is a course. Yeah, well, I, uh, as you know, have been doing experiential training for a number of decades. And I really believe strongly, and the research also supports, that people learn when they are actively engaged in the material. So for me, it was a big step to take something into an online course. Because I wanted to be sure that I could replicate some of the interactivity and some of the reflection that I would include in a face-to-face -face course. So it was really important to me to have exercises and a way for people to interact. But yes, I have an online retrospective course. So in this episode, we're going to give you five tips that we think will help you get more out of your retros. We're not going to talk about, you know, specific formats because there's so much online. There's so many books covering like, oh, here are 10 different formats you sh should use. We're more going to focus on, you know, rationale. But before we do that, Esther. Five stages. Yeah, five tips and five stages. So this is the format that I um, prefer for retrospectives. It's not the only one, but I like it because it builds on how people naturally process information. 
So it starts with setting a stage, which is essentially just saying, here's what we're going to focus on. You know, there's a billion things we could focus on, but for this period of time, this hour, this half hour, however long your retrospective is, we're going to focus on this one thing. And that tends to remove a lot of, um, you know, churn and just helps people focus. So set the stage, gather data, which means that whatever you are focusing on, you have some either objective or subjective information about it so that you can process that together. So you're not just working from opinions. Um, generate insights, which is the group examining the data together and seeing what it means to them, what sense they can make out of it, what patterns they see. Decide what to do, which is choosing an action or an experiment based on the insights. And then closing the retrospective, which is just reviewing what happened, reiterating it, tying it up with a bow, saying thank you, closing that and moving on into the regular work. So it's how people think when they're thinking clearly. And there's there's even like Retromat, I don't know if it's .com, but retromat.something, we'll have a link in the show notes. They That's a website where you, it's almost like a, Retro Builder. So for it's ba based on that format. So if you go into the page, you're going to get one suggestion for something that helps you set the stage, one thing that helps you gather data, etc. A lot of people use just one part of, well, two parts of that. They, they gather subjective data using a mad, sad, glad format or a keep, drop, add format, which is people's opinions about stuff. And then they decide what to do. So they have, you know, they have those two pieces of it, but without the others, it's often pretty superficial. Uh, okay, so that's setting the stage. Um, for me, I remember when I took your PSL and like the one-liner on retros that I, uh, you didn't talk about it there, but what the purpose of retros is, but you just said like, okay, you know, let's talk about, let's look at how we as a group or a team can collaborate better. And that kind of encapsulates what the purpose is with the retro. Yeah, I would say it's it's for a team to to use the words they use in Scrum to inspect and adapt and to look at their technical practices, their collaboration practices, you know, anything related to how they're working together and identify ways in which they can grow and learn and increase their capability. So it's about getting better. So without any specific ranking, here are five tips that we think will help. The first tip is build it in. And what we mean with that is you don't have to have a huge retro at the end of an iteration. Even if it's a one-week or two-week iteration, you don't have to wait in order to have conversations about how you can collaborate better. If you're in a planning meeting, reserve the last five minutes or ten minutes and say, you know, Let's, let's look, since we just came from this meeting, let's talk about what it was in this meeting that was helpful to us and what elements we could change in order to make the next meeting better. That's a way to build it in. And then you choose one thing that you're going to change? Yeah, you could, you could, so that you could, if you come up with five or six different things, you can ask them, you know, what, what are these, uh, and I like the way you phrase it, what of these do you have energy to do? Rather than going on dot voting and making a huge decision-making process, like, what do you have energy for? So even when you're building it in, what I heard you saying was, 
a little tiny version of that five-phase format, right? So there was a, a statement about focus. Let's talk about the meeting we were just in. There was gathering some subjective data about what worked for us, what didn't work for us. And there were some, you know, based on that, let's pick a, something to change. So that's looking for some insights and making a choice. So even when you build it in, in that, in that tiny little conversation, you had all of those stages in there. So b before we had this conversation, I didn't think about that. Um, but yeah, it, I think it makes total sense, your, uh, the five stages. And you can do this, and, and so then, but you can also combine this, because maybe you, so there are situations where building it in might not work. Uh, if you are collaborating, if you have teams collaborating, so there are two different teams and they're collaborating, they might not have a daily arena where they're meeting, or they may not, might not have an arena where they're meeting regularly, so there you might want a retrospective. If a team is standing in front like they have a huge challenge in before them or behind them, they might want to take a larger timeout. It might not be something they can build in. Yeah, and I would add that the teams you're working with have a very experienced coach to help them pause and reflect and retrospect on a, a kind of ongoing basis. And not every team has that. So I sometimes find it useful for teams to start with a more formal retrospective to get in the habit of learning about how they're working together and to get in the habit of having those conversations with each other. So I think it's I think it's a both sort of statement. And I think for many teams who don't have the sort of coaching that you have, you know, this is, you know, doing a more formal process is often a good learning stage for them. Let's move on to the second tip. Okay. Set the purpose or the focus in advance together with the team, preferably. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of retrospectives that just kind of swirl around or they spend a lot of time choosing what they're going to talk about. And by the time they've chosen what they're going to talk about, you know, their time's up. So I think in many cases, choosing a focus in advance is super important. And I see a lot of teams that shift format every time based on what's fun rather than, you know, what do we, what aspect of our collaboration do we want to focus on and improve? I've, I've, I've heard coaches say that they're bored by the format. I've heard teams say that, oh, we just want to try new and different formats. So they're more there for the kick of, you know, variation rather than the purpose of improvement. Mm. Yeah, I think the focus determines how you, how, what sort of data you have, what sort of thinking tools you use when you get to generating insights. It, it can influence how you choose whether you go through a formal evaluation process or you just base, choose based on energy. So I think the focus flows through all your choices. And it doesn't have to be a huge process to figure out the focus. Mm -mm. So you could just talk about it one or two days in advance during the stand-up. Hey, we have a retro coming up. What do you think we should talk about? What aspect do you think we should talk about of our collaboration? It could also be something you've observed. Like, oh, I've observed that we rarely collaborate across our crafts. Let's look at what effects that's having. What do you think about that? But establishing that in advance with a clear purpose on what it is that you want to explore and start experimenting on. I've seen teams who keep a running list of potential topics and then before the retrospective they vote on it and then based on the topic that they have chosen, 
that determines the rest of the design of it. So there's lots of ways to do that. Is that a cat? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a beautiful cat. It is. Moving on to uh, our third tip. Number three, use data. You know, I heard you say there's subjective data. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing there's objective data, or I know there's objective data. Yes. The distinction I make is that objective data is something that can be observed and potentially counted, but it is something that can be verified. Subjective data has to do with perceptions and feelings. They're both completely valid, right? And sometimes one is more appropriate to the topic you're you're focused on, and sometimes the other is. I mean, if you're talking about how people feel about the way they're collaborating, that's probably subjective data. I mean, in theory, you could get some objective data about it, but subjective is probably sufficient. But if you're talking about patterns of defects or throughput, you want data. You don't just want people's opinions and perceptions about it. I agree completely. I'm just, I just felt a personal challenge when you said, oh, you know, collaboration is more subjective. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if you could look at patterns of interactions between individuals. That would be more objective. Well, yeah, you could actually gather data about who interrupts whom and who asks questions and whether they get answered. So you actually can get objective data about that sort of thing. But subjective data might be sufficient. So is is that how you pick when you when you're holding a retro? Yeah, I look at what the focus is and say what sort of data will help us explore this particular focus. Do we really need to gather or find some existing data that will give us facts about this? You know, do we need to count the number of defects? Do we need to look at, you know, how long stories are delayed? You know, there can be any number of things where you having objective data actually is essential to problem solving, right? It, it, you can't say, well, I, you know, in my opinion, our defects are too high or are too low. I mean, that, that, that's okay as an opinion, but it doesn't help you solve the problem, right? So in that, in that sort of case, I'd want more objective data. But on the other hand, if you're talking about how well are we doing with TDD, having people rate subjectively how they feel about how well the team is doing could lead to a really interesting conversation. You know, if someone feels like, well, I think we're doing extremely well with it, and someone else says, oh, no, we're just taking baby steps, then that could lead to a useful conversation about why do you think we have room to improve? Why do you think we're doing so well? And, And that could be super useful to a team. But it's subjective data. Other things like what does our happiness and productivity level look like right now? How has it changed over time? These are also other examples of just mm-hmm. yeah, other themes of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But if you, want, if you want to bring in data that requires a little bit of research or a little bit of back-of-the-envelope data gathering, then you have to have the focus ahead of time. If you're choosing the focus during the retrospective, that limits how much data you can reasonably bring into the retrospective. Or you're going to need a lot more time for your retro. Yeah, right. There's also value in some cases exploring the group, exploring the data together and and digging it out. Sometimes that is its own helping the team become aware and drawing the same insights. Sometimes that's just transforming for a team. Hmm. Sounds like you have a story about that. In anthropology, my spouse talked about, you know, sometimes when you don't know the purpose, 
just generally exploring in order to figure out or to even be able to define a hypothesis is a, a valid approach. So as a group, exploring data to form hypotheses can be something valuable as well. Mm-hmm. But then that has to be the focus. Like, we don't know what to explore, so just let's explore what to explore. I agree completely. But that touches back on the purpose of retrospectives, which is really to help teams develop their capabilities, right? And and looking at data together and making sense of data together, figuring out just what sort of data would be useful is in and of itself a useful skill for a team. And retrospectives is one of the places you can focus on learning that. Let's uh, let's move on to tip four. Okay, pay attention to group dynamics. Yeah. I think that's super important, particularly when groups are starting out, because they very often come from a, you know, a background and a set of habits that says, you know, if you're the smart guy, you speak first, or if you're the most senior guy, you speak first and you speak most, and everybody kind of defers to that. So I think it's super important to pay attention to that so that Everybody has a chance to speak. Yeah, and design your retros or facilitate them accordingly. So if you're in this situation that you're describing that there's not equal airtime or there's always one person being interrupted, you know, use a talking stick. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this is a new group and there's a lot of artificial harmony. People are not comfortable in actually sharing what they think or feel. You know, build, use an icebreaker or have an exercise that builds psychological safety. Yeah. Well, that's one of the main reasons I use structured activities and exercises in retrospectives is it reduces the facilitation burden of trying to keep a conversation going and keep, you know, keeping that equal participation going because people follow a structure. And if you have, you know, if you have a big group, you do, you have people doing parallel processing small groups doing the same sorts of activities and then coming back together. But it's they, the, the structures themselves exist to help people um, participate and think together. So that's one of the main reasons I use them. If you're listening and you're not really, if you're new to group dynamics, uh, you can look at Bruce Tuckman. It's a good representation of group dynamics. It's not the best. It's not very deep. But it, it talks a little bit about what groups go through and shows you, it shows you a few signs that you can pay attention to in each stage. So I think that's uh, useful to understand something about them if you're going to be working on a team. I mean, it's kind of one of those kind of bases of knowledge that people need to have. I've been playing with a few things about using role cards in retrospectives where, you know, someone will take the role of uh, paying attention to participation or someone will take the role of um, summarizing so that it distributes the responsibility for the group having a good meeting. So it's not just the scrum master or the coach's responsibility. It becomes everybody's responsibility. And over time, people learn more about just how do you have a productive conversation in a group. Are, are these cards available now? I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to be super curious about that. <laughs> um, right now, I, I have them available as part of my um, online course. But I'm thinking about making them more broadly available. And that brings us to our fifth tip, which is that the team owns the problem, and the solutions. Yep. 
It's common that I see coaches and scrum masters sitting after a retro, documenting the entire retro. So they're taking each post-it note and they're just writing it as a bullet list in Confluence or wherever. I don't think that's what we should be focusing on. That becomes more of an assistant role. No one's going to read that. Very few people read that afterward. So I think it's better to either ask the team what, what parts of this retro should we document or just document the decisions that were made. Like these are the experiments that came out of this retro. I also see some coaches saying, or I hear some coaches saying, oh, I'm not going to document it. But the, and then they take pictures. And I think that's a good step, but it's better to like start working on handing this responsibility over to the team. Yeah, it's the team's improvement to make, right? So, so I, I think it's super important for the team to own the outcome. Um, and of course, that reminds me of a story where I was observing a retrospective where the the guy who was leading up the you know the agile stuff was also a manager. He was a dev manager, and he was facilitating a retrospective, and it went reasonably well. You know, they they were looking at data, and they had come up with some ideas about it. And it got to the point of deciding what to do. And he said, well, I'm going to take my facilitator hat off now and put on my manager hat, and you should do this, which was not conducive to the team owning the outcome. No. Ugh. So, yeah. Even if they choose something that you don't think is the most important thing as a coach or an outsider, if they're going to follow through on it, I am A-okay with that. Yeah. And especially this ties together to the group dynamics. If it's if you have a team that's you know new to new with working together, and they are able to make a decision on an improvement, that is a huge victory. Honor that. Celebrate that. This woohoo. Yeah. Yeah, that learning how to make decisions together is a critical part of being a team. So, so it's another. It's yet another way that this. Um, the practice of a retrospective reinforces learning how to work well as a team. I'm just thinking about the coaches that are embedded into teams because it's it's common. It's very common that you know companies they have agile coaches in teams. Like oh, you belong to one or two teams, or a scrum master per team, or an agile team coach, and they're like, I'm a part of this team. So this is my role. Like my role, my responsibility towards the team is to facilitate them, to document them, to to hold them accountable to the changes they've made. And I think there's a an identity uh, crisis or like an inner conflict here uh, for a lot of coaches that may agree, but that are stuck in a system that still relies on them to do this. But I think that's one thing worth exploring with your team. If I were to leave you what would you need to learn in order to be able to function well without an agile coach? That could be a retro. Yep, I think that's an important question. Yeah, I really understand. That is a difficult situation to be in as a coach, but there's also a lot of value in handing this over to the team. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to see if I can reiterate our five top, our top five tips for today. So... um Build on and combine your retrospectives. So it doesn't have to always be a formal meeting. You can do it whenever an opportunity to reflect comes up. And 
save save the formal retrospectives as a special call-out meeting for situations where they're necessary. Um, set a focus in advance so people know what they're going to be talking about and you can figure out both the data and the thinking activities that are going to be most helpful given that focus. And if you choose a focus, then you can prepare, if it's appropriate, with data that will support the focus. So if you're focusing on throughput, then you can get your throughput data, or you can get your defect data if you're focusing on defects, or you can get some data about how you're collaborating. Or if you're doing something that requires more subjective data, maybe you can gather it in the retrospective. But choosing the focus ahead of time will help you know what data will be helpful. So you can use your data. Pay attention to group dynamics. That was our fourth tip. And let the team own the outcome. So five tips. If you want to learn more, we have a few links to books and websites that contains further reading and inspiration that you can use for your retros. Just go into our website and look at the episode page. And I'm also going to include a discount uh, to my online course if you want to learn more that way. You just you can find the discount code in the session notes. If you want to talk to more people about this, the, we have a coaching agile Slack channel, and we're going to link the registration. It's free uh, to join if you would like to, and where you can talk more with other agilists. It's a fantastic Slack team. So that's it for today. Thanks a lot, Esther. It was always great talking to you, Victor. 